Welcome to PS Pod, a podcast for CPT pharmacometrics and systems pharmacology. In this episode, Dennis Velasco speaks with Peter Bonet from Estellas. They will discuss communicating systems pharmacology and pharmacometrics models. Thank you very much, Dr. Bonet, for joining us. So let's get right to the questions. So it may seem obvious, but why should modelers be concerned with effective communication? You know, thanks for inviting me to answer these questions today. This is an area I'm pretty passionate about. But, you know, it isn't just modelers that should be concerned with effective communication. I think everyone should be. Go back through history and you think about all the lost opportunities that occurred because of poor communication, there's a lot. Romeo and Juliet would have been a totally different story had those two been better communicators, right? But all joking aside, I think people in industry should be concerned about effective communication for a very practical reason, and that's money. Studies have shown that higher performing companies have more effective communication strategies. I saw one survey where companies that had high communication effectiveness provided 57% more shareholder value than companies that had low communication practices. And if you look at the Merck-Vioxx verdict from a couple of years ago, that jury verdict was upwards of $250 million. And it was said afterwards that Merck lost that trial because they couldn't communicate the science to the jury. I think there's some very practical reasons for wanting to become better communicators, but just from my own practical experiences, you know, there's been a lot of times in my career where I haven't had the impact that I thought I should have simply because I wasn't as good a communicator to the teams that I was presenting to. You know, as a hiring manager, I actually look for employees that have good communication skills. I would rather hire somebody who's a good communicator and maybe a solid modeler than a very talented modeler who can't communicate with people. So I think that for somebody to be truly effective today, you need this balance of technical skills and these soft communication skills. What are some quick and easy things that modelers can do to improve their oral communication skills? The first thing that you need to do is just look at your presentation from the point of view of the audience. Too often, We make our presentations based on slides that we might have prepared for our manager or for other technical people in our group, and we simply just reuse these slides because we don't have time to make them into something more easily digestible to the teams that we work on. If you think about the core team structure in the pharmaceutical industry today, it's a very multidimensional team with people coming at it from different skills and different scientific backgrounds. Most people on that team don't understand modeling. They don't understand pharmacokinetics. And we kind of take that for granted. You know, it's been called the curse of knowledge because these things that we've just kind of lived in throughout our career, other people have no idea what we're talking about. So when we talk about thetas and etas and objective functions, they don't get that kind of jargon. So look at your presentation from their point of view and try to make it digestible for what their needs are, not necessarily what your needs are. You know, the second thing I think you should do is practice. Too often, presentations are just given on the fly. People don't really practice. Maybe for an important talk, you know, in front of a large group, they might do some practice. But just in our day-to-day work life, 
nobody ever really practices the presentations that they're doing. And I think what happens is as you're giving those presentations, then you kind of stumble in places. You don't really know what you want to say in certain slides. And that actually affects your credibility because if you don't know what you're trying to say on a certain slide, people kind of look at it and like, well, if this guy doesn't know this, what else isn't he showing me? Practice is extremely important. Also makes you more comfortable speaking in front of groups. I know a lot of people don't like speaking in front of groups. It makes them nervous, makes them really stressed out. But, you know, the more often you do it, the more comfortable you become, the easier it gets. I think the third thing that you could do is try to project confidence when you talk. We have a lot of introverts in our field, quiet people, not necessarily used to giving like extroverted, outgoing presentations. But just projecting a level of confidence improves your credibility with your audience. A lot of times, even after you explain your model and what you've done to non-technical people, they don't necessarily understand what you've done. So instead, they look to you and they ask themselves, do they believe you? Do they believe that you have the skills and that you've done it right? Do they trust you? If they can answer this in the affirmative, then I think they're more likely to believe that the work that you did and maybe forgive any shortcomings that may have come up during the presentation. There's all kinds of little things that you can do. Make sure your message is clear. Put your slides together. Try to limit the amount of information on any one slide. Don't try to make too many points on a single slide. It just clutters the slide up. In your slide headers, Instead of saying what kind of figure it is, like for instance, this is a Kaplan-Meier plot, put as the title what the conclusion of the slide is. For instance, your drug prolonged survival by 27%. Oftentimes the slide decks that we use get passed around and you're not there to present on them. And if you don't have the conclusion for what you're trying to make on a slide, if you don't have it written on that slide, they have to draw their own conclusions. That might not be what you want them to get from that slide. Think about the fonts, the formats, the colors that you're using. Make sure it's consistent. Make sure it looks professional. These are just little things that you can do. You mentioned before that public speaking makes most people nervous, which I agree with. Other things that people can do to help calm their nerves? Yeah, absolutely. As I said just a few seconds before, the more often you do it, the easier it gets. You never really get over your fear of public speaking, but you can learn to take that nervousness and turn it into a positive energy. And the more often you do this, the easier that becomes. Before you actually give your presentation, there are visualization techniques that you can borrow from athletes. If you get extremely nervous about public speaking, just visualize your presentation beforehand, what you're going to do, how you're going to say things. And when athletes do this, they actually visualize themselves winning the race. And I think that's an important thing, too. If you're going to use visualization techniques, visualize the audience clapping for you, being happy of your success at giving the presentation. I think that kind of provides you with the emotion to overcome the nervousness. Personally, me, if I have a big presentation that I'm going to give to overcome my nerves, I actually listen to stand-up comedians. I think the energy that you get from listening to a comic beforehand takes away your nervousness because whenever you laugh, you know, it releases endorphins and it just puts you in a happy place. You know, the other thing, too, is I think, you know, listening to stand-up comics, not necessarily for their jokes, but for the way that they tell their jokes is important. 
comics are masters of timing, and they learn how to control an audience. And if you watch how good presenters present, it makes you a better presenter. And if you don't want to watch stand-up comic or something like that, watch the TED Talks. You know, if you feel like comedy's beneath you, watch the TED Talks. I mean, they're basically maybe a scientific version of, of stand-up comedy. That's the way I look at them. They're highly polished, stylized presentations that people have been practicing for over a year. But they give you a feel for what the idealized presentation should look like. So I think, you know, maybe some of these things will help. So what is more important, content or delivery? You know, I think that's a really tough question. Certainly great content not delivered effectively loses its impact. On the other hand, though, I think if you have great delivery of low content or content low in information, that's not really all that impactful. So I don't think you can really separate one from the other. They kind of go hand in hand. I don't believe there's really a right answer here that one is more important than the other. And I think if you were to ask different people, you'd probably get different answers to that question. Some people will say, well, you know, it's, there's that old saying, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. So for them, it's probably the delivery that's more important than content. You know, but certainly if you look for, you know, some of the people running for office today, you, you know, you might be able to argue that delivery is more important than content. But for me, I think content probably has an edge over delivery. There's few people that you'd be willing to pay and go see and listen to regardless of what they have to say. We go to people and we listen to them because we really care what they have to say. If you think of like Stephen Hawking, his disability makes it difficult for him to give a good presentation, yet they throng to see him. He sells out every venue whenever he gives a presentation, and this is because of what he says, not necessarily how he says it. So I'm going to have to say that content is more important than delivery. Yeah, final answer. Okay. All right, so you've recently written a book on communication for modelers reviewing this very journal called Be a Model Communicator. Within it, you talk about tailoring your presentation to your audience, particularly to the hippo in the room. Can you elaborate? Sure. First, let me just say that hippo is not a word that I invented. Somebody else coined it a couple years ago. I was by this guy, Jim Stern. He's a Internet guy. But HIPPO stands for the highest paid person's opinion. basically means that when you're in a team, there's usually one person in the team. Even if the team is supposed to be this purely democratic team, there's one person who, after everybody else has said yes, if that person says no, then it stops right there. That's the hippo. And, of course, you know, the joke is that person usually has the biggest salary in the room. So that's where the hippo comes from. And, of course, there's the metaphor, you know, that hippos are big and these people may be big in personalities. That's where the whole hippo metaphor comes from. My point in the book, though, is that given that there's so many people in the audience that have different backgrounds, it's impossible to tailor your presentation to all of them. What I recommend is that you tailor your presentation to the hippo. You give your presentation to that person and you stylize it to how they want to see their data. I think that if you can get the hippo to buy into what you're doing, you're more likely to get the team to buy in as well. That's the hippo concept. The second idea that I put in my book is the decision-making style of the hippo. These guys, Williams and Miller, they wrote this book a couple years ago, The Five Paths of Persuasion. 
And you know, I've read a couple of different books on how to tailor your presentation to an audience, and I really like the ideas behind Williams and Miller. I've been using this for about 10 years, and I can vouch it's a valid approach to work. And basically what they did is they interviewed over 2,000 executives, vice presidents and above, and looked at how they work to make decisions. Doing some factor analysis and stuff, they've basically identified five different clusters of decision-making styles. I go into all of these in my book, but, you know, the two that I want to talk about here one style would be like a charismatic. A charismatic accounts for about a quarter of all executives. And these are the guys that come into a room and you know they've come into the room. If you think about Richard Branson from Virgin Airlines, he's definitely a charismatic in the way that he works. These are the big picture guys. When you present data to them, they don't want to see every nitty gritty detail. They want big ideas. They want their data presented to them in little chunks. I actually think that Williams and Miller coined the charismatics and kind of mislabeled them. I tend to think of these guys as the ADHD guys. These are the guys that don't have the attention span to sit there for long periods of time listening to your presentations. They want the conclusions right up front, and they want to know what you're thinking. They don't want to go into a lot of details. At the other end, you can think about what are called controllers, and these are about 10% of the executives that they studied. The controllers are the micromanagers. They want to see everything. They don't want to see a high-level presentation. They want to go into the details. Controllers are risk-adverse, and by seeing every detail of what you're presenting to them, it makes them feel like they're discharging the risk internally. These guys are constant worriers. They're rigid with how they think about things. You can think of like Martha Stewart or Vladimir Putin. These are examples of controllers. When you present to them, you need to be in it for the long haul. It's not a short presentation. It's a long presentation with them. They're going to ask you lots of questions, and you need your answers to be linear and well thought out beforehand. If you stumble to a controller, this is a sign of weakness, and it just makes things more risky for them. The point is that you need to find the decision-making style of the hippo in the room and then tailor your presentation to that person. In my book, I talk about the other different styles as well. Do systems pharmacology models, which are typically very large and complex, both biologically intuitive, require different communication skills than pharmacometric models, which are smaller but more abstract? Yeah, good question. No, I don't think so. The reason is because I don't really advocate showing systems pharmacology models to project teams. I think they're too complicated. Teams don't really understand them. My approach would be to simplify a systems pharmacology model into higher level groups and just show how those systems interact in general. Much like you might take a 14 or 15 compartment PVPK model and present it as a three or four compartment lumped model. That's kind of the approach I prefer with systems pharmacology models. And once you do that, the presentations then basically become the same. Could you please give your view on using the box quote, all models are wrong, but some are useful? <laughs> yeah, someone must have heard one of my previous rants on this. This quote just drives me nuts. It seems like whenever you try to present something new or novel in modeling, there's always some wise guy in the room who raises box quote. The reason I don't like this quote is for a couple of reasons. As modelers, 
I think we understand really what Box is trying to say in this quote. But I think to a layperson who doesn't really understand models, what they fixate on is that all models are wrong. And they fixate on that wrong word. And if they think basically that if all models are wrong, and that means your model's wrong, so why are they even listening to you? It's a challenge. And part of the problem, too, is that Box's quote is actually taken out of context. This quote is actually in a book on response surface methodology, and response surfaces are low-level polynomials used to fit a design space. In that case, polynomials are wrong for modeling that kind of data, but you know some of the response surfaces are useful. If you look at the entire quote, it goes something like this. The fact that the polynomial is an approximation does not necessarily detract from its usefulness because all models are approximations. Essentially, all models are wrong, but some are useful. However, the approximate nature of the model must always be kept in mind. This quote's been applied to every model today. I actually prefer what Box says in the first sentence. All models are approximations. I think that more accurately reflects what we're trying to do when we model. So today, I prefer to use the quote, all models are approximations, some perform better than others. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Bonet. Really appreciate you coming on, and I thought this was very informative. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed doing it. Thank you for listening. PS Pod is a co-production of the American Society for Clinical Pharmacology and Therapeutics and Wiley. It was recorded and hosted by Dennis Velasco and directed, edited, and coordinated by Joe Troiano. All opinions of this podcast are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or the sponsors. 